0: All right, so uh, we're here with Stuart Weinstock. Stuart has been gracious enough to sit through my audio problems. I knew it would eventually happen, so.
1: (laughs) No worries, Rob. Hey there.
0: What's going on? What's going on? Uh, Stuart was a professor of mine here at Rampo College, and uh, let's get
1: the question started, shall we? Of course. So uh, when did you first discover your love for film? Early, early. I mean, I I grew up, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, even though probably didn't really come into my own taste until the early 90s. So I mean, I got to grow up with movies like the Ghostbusters, and the Indiana Jones movies, and the Star Wars movies. And I, these things just um, kind of ignited my imagination from a very early age. And I, I think I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, a director, since I was maybe six or seven. And um of course, I don't remember this period as well as as my parents, the people who who kind of tell me the stories about this this time. And um, yeah, I, I guess at, at at six or seven, most kids don't know that there's a director. They don't know that there's somebody behind the camera. That there's somebody pulling the levers and doing these things to magic. tell a story. Yeah, they yeah. they just assume. I, yeah, it's, it's pretend it's make-believe, but, but the magic is still there. And as much as I, I got hooked on the magic very early on, and I'm still a fan. I still, I still go to movies primarily to enjoy myself and to get lost in a story being told well. Uh, but, was yeah, there, from a very early time, I knew I wanted to do this.
0: Was there a film in particular that really, like for me, like, I, I, like uh, Star Wars oh, yeah. was, was my first thing that I was absolutely infatuated with was there a film in particular that was your first that really kind of set you off into the world of filmmaking, or?
1: Never sure, done. I I remember watching Star Wars on on VHS with my dad, and like that became certainly a, a, one of the better generational experiences we have, sort of as a culture. Like I, yeah. I made a point of going to see The Force Awakens with my dad a couple of months ago, and and it's cool. great that that that's something that that. Can be shared uh, and and is so widely shared um, Star Wars though isn't the the franchise that i I kind of would go to the battlements for as much as, as much as I loved those three original movies, or you know the first trilogy, uh, however you want to think of it Indiana Jones is, yeah. is my jam Th- those are the <laughs> movies that that I, I can debate endlessly I'll defend Crystal yeah. Skull when needed. And uh Were I Were you the I boy g- with the baseball cap? Was that you? Uh I, I I mean I wanted to be indie. Who didn't want to be indie? I mean it's he's especially now, I mean, as a college teacher, I has there ever been a cooler college professor than Indiana Jones? I don't think so. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I would say Walter White, but he was a high school teacher, so uh
1: <laughs> he's close. Also things ended badly for him. You yeah. Know, you you wanna emulate Indiana Jones. You don't necessarily wanna yeah, follow Walter in Walter White. White's
0: footsteps. Yeah. My uh, fiance, I said it right that time. There you uh, go. She is um, getting back. She, for the longest time, she didn't want to watch Breaking Bad, and uh, she j- she just goes through through these seasons one after the other. It's so quick. It, it's actually quite impressive. But I've been kind of reliving the magic of that show. So uh, that, that's some, this is some good filmmaking right there with Breaking Bad.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's really cinematic television. And at a time when that was something that we don't take for granted quite as much as we do now. Right. I just gorgeously shot. I mean, it's it's a Western. Yeah. Done for TV. And it doesn't in any way look scaled down. I mean, if you look at even the great shows, your, your West Wing, NYPD Blue, um, Hill Street Blues, the, the things that came before it, that, that MASH, that mm-hmm. people consider canonical TV, is still primarily a lot of close-ups, a lot of sort of cutting back and forth between talking heads, because yeah. it's formatted for a smaller TV screen. But Breaking Bad doesn't care about the size of your screen. It's, right. it's trying to deliver a movie experience at home. Yeah. And there is a, uh, this is kind of a side note here, but, you sure. know, that's, we, we, we like- I love digressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: There's going to be a lot of them, I can assure you. Cool. Uh, I was once told I have the attention span of a squirrel but uh <laughs> I, there is a really cool thing for breaking bad fans it it is the um forgot what it was called but it it was a a digital book on on the iPad I'm not sure if you're familiar with it but they have uh an ex- extensive behind the scenes footage and they went to really great lengths to 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 get these shots There are cranes and and just you know just the, the effects to get these li- the lighting shots they do the lighting alone yeah. is really great and they and they talk about how um, there's no spoilers here, I don't think. But uh, how and the show's
1: been off the air for two years. I yeah, mean, yeah. I, you the, can say anything you want. Yeah, the two
0: years I think is yeah, the limit, right? Um, but but uh, they talk about how they were lighting the the house and the, that throughout the duration of of the. Of all of the seasons, it gets darker and darker. And they said by the end, they kind of ran into a problem because they were on set and the lights were basically off. <laughs> and and all the lighting guys were going, it's got to be dark. And then, you know, so it was kind of yeah. a, a fight on, on, the, on the set. But that's kind of cool. So uh, for yeah, many cool. for many creatives, there comes a moment of passion where uh, it becomes a career. And uh, obviously, filmmaking is, is your career. Filmmaking and teaching is your career. Mm-hmm. Um, But when was the moment where you went from being an avid film fan to saying, I want to do this for the rest of my
1: life? So I I always knew that I wanted to do it, but I wasn't that kid who was running around in the backyard with my dad's camcorder. I I was always sort of thinking on a Hollywood scale. So, you know, no idiot is going to... Or you would have to be an idiot to give a a 12-year-old $50 million to make an action movie. But, like, that's what I was thinking. That's what I had in my mind's eye. And I, I wasn't... The type to I like if you have you seen um, me me and Earl and the dying and the dying girl, I don't think so. So that's that or that uh, I think be <laughs> be kind. Rewind is uh, the Michel Gondry film from a few years back with uh, Jack Black and Most deaf yeah. Either way, both both are sort of movies about amateur filmmakers where you see uh, these film fans kind of um, doing like like trying to remake. Ghostbusters, another big Hollywood blockbusters on a $10 budget. Right. And so this is all, all a very long-winded way of saying as fun as that looks, that was never me. Right. Instead, around the age of 13, 14, I started reading screenwriting books and realized I could actually put this stuff on the page and um, kind of get realize realize a vision that way, tell a story that way. And one of the... The perks of being self-taught is that there's nobody there to sort of tell you to slow down or that you know you, you, can, fail, work, you kid, can work you can work on exactly what you want to work, which for me meant writing this thing wildly out of order, never outlining uh, which I now rely on quite a bit um and I mean, of course, that first script is crap. I mean, it's not. Yeah. That's, it was a necessary exercise in Do the learning. Do you still have group. it? Or? Of course, yeah. I, I, I oh, have I love it. I have read it. It's 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 <laughs> unproducible. I mean, it's 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 totally indulgent. It's the work of a fourteen-year-old. Yeah. Um. But what's great that though about being self-taught is then getting to a, a college situation, a grad school, a film school situation, where then. All of those lessons I thought I'd learned from books or that I thought I'd picked up from articles, from, from seminars, from you know the, the Robert McKee type thing that you see in, in the movie adaptation, uh, I did all of that and then got to an actual classroom, an actual workshop with um, sort of experienced professional instructors and classmates who were also artistic peers, who were able to sort of look at my self-taught work and say, "No, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. This is how you do it," and I- I'm yeah. infinitely better at it for that experience. Yeah,
0: I had the, that same experience here at Rampo, um, and you referred to, uh, you know, outlining um, with graphic design. It's about the grid. It's a, yeah. it's, it's about all you know, the, the research and 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 when you come to college, I think that. I think people are looking for th- this great, grand experience of really learning. And I, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's kind of, you know, ironing out th- those um, assumptions that you had and, and kind of putting you on the right track. It's kind of like a stepping stone. Uh, you went to Columbia University, correct?
1: I did. I got my BA and my MFA both from Columbia. And then you were an adjunct professor there, right? I, I have been. I still am I've an adjunct I've been on your there. LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's out, it's out there for the, for the, for the general <laughs> okay. public. Um, yeah. And I, that that was a great experience. And what I found in so I, I just to sort of separate briefly college mm-hmm. from grad school. What I what I loved about college was the, uh, getting a liberal arts education, reading the Iliad and the Aeneid and 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 classic works of sort of Western philosophy, Western art, all of that stuff that you know pops up. In, mm. in writing, in filmmaking. And all of those influences are there to be seen. It's just, um, well, it, it, I, you know, on one hand, there's sort of like the, the Joseph Campbell idea, like we're all telling the same story, essentially. Yeah. That, that it boils down to the same hero's journey. It's but also,
0: like
1: yeah. Yeah, it, beyond that, it just, learning craft
0: mm-hmm.
1: from, from great writers is something that I, I wouldn't have done on my own. Right. I wouldn't have had the discipline to fight my way through, you know, Augustine. Yeah. To to get <laughs> to to really dig and 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 appreciate and understand what he's doing. Right. Um so that's the great thing about college, sort of that process of discovery of getting out yeah, learning within my major but then learning all of these kind of great things and and taking classes outside my major to just sort of follow paths of intellectual curiosity. Right. So for me, that's college. Grad school is where your brain gets reordered sort of according to whatever dominant model your field follows. So if you're, um, if you're an economist, you're, or, or just I, somebody working in the financial sector, your brain is wired to think in those terms. You're a doctor, you think systematically that way. In film school, I I kind of learned how to see life in yeah. terms of dramatic beats, which is kind of crazy. I mean, early on, I'm sitting in a conversation, listening listening to let's say two friends talk, and I, I'm aware of sort of where the pauses are landing, where the dramatic beats are, where yeah. things are breaking down. Yeah, and and you gotta sort of resist the impulse to like direct your friends in real life the same <laughs> way you know a social worker or somebody in, in school for psychology needs to not, you know, analyze all of their friends. Right. But that's what I found, that grad school is really about kind of reordering thought yeah. and accepting sort of whatever the dominant um, orientation is yeah. for for your field, for your profession.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I actually just sp- spoke, as I said uh, earlier today, I spoke uh, to Sean Adams um, last night, and he kind of talked about the same thing and, and about how... Um, a lot of creative types, and this is what this podcast really is about, is a lot of creative types, um, the ones who are successful, leverage from the greats. They, they, they are in the libraries, uh, you know, do it, doing the research, doing, of course. you know, forcing themselves to get through things that might be kind of dry, but kind of coming out on the other end with a better understanding and widening their, their vocabulary. So it's kind of funny uh, that, that you said that as well, and I think that that is. A mark of somebody who is very successful in their creative field is they are successful or are good at what they do because they have a, a broad vocabulary or, or a broad, you know, understanding of all of these kind
1: of, you know, important things. Really. Well, I, I certainly hope that's the case. I mean, that's yeah. that's why why I've kind of put <laughs> time here. into this. Yeah. yeah. That's, and um, I mean, I'm of course flattered by the uh, implication there, but. Yeah, I'm I'm doing my best to kind of explore as many interests as possible to not just focus on film because if I find that those who do that ultimately just make movies about movies, Right. and I mean that's great. Perhaps some of your favorite yeah. filmmakers have <laughs> have have made their careers that way, and I I, I mean we can call people out, but I, yeah. I think I'll be nice. But yeah. like it's uh, you got to have have something to want to create about. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's true as well for design where, you know, there's the job, there's the client that has to be pleased. But then beyond that, you know, to have any kind of artistic stake in the process, mm-hmm. um, there must be sort of ideas and influences that you're constantly working through yeah. as well. It's very They're, they're very
0: similar. And uh, my, my best friend, who you're meeting with later today, Dustin Wolf, one of my best friends, I should say,
1: um, who who made a great documentary, by the way.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so cool, and uh, we'll we'll touch on that in a, in a little bit. But uh, but he, uh, we when we first both came, in, we both were doing graphic design, and he went and on to film, which is good because I think it, it it really suits him well, uh, much better than graphic design. And I think that Dustin's very talented, and he's come a long way. Um, but w- one of the things I realized in talking to him was is is that design. And and, um, and filmmaking are very similar because in in the professional world of design, the professional world of filmmaking, they're very similar because in graphic design, it's the client. And then in, in, in film, it's, you know, whoever's funding the movie or, or the production company. Mm-hmm. And, and there's all these kind of... Ultimately the audience. Right. Ultimately the And then also not, you know, wanting to hold on to your artistic stake in the matter and learn, learning to let go and learning to compromise. And that's kind of... Interesting, but um, our, our conversation before that actually is a perfect segue into my next question I had for you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I was fortunate enough to be placed in your history of comedy class, and uh, and when I reflect back on my college years, you know that will be one of the ones I will certainly remember as a fond memory and a great learning experience. Thank you, no problem. Uh, however, admittedly, when I first attended your class, uh, I was like, wait, silent, you know, silent films, <laughs> black and white. This is not what I signed up for. But as the class progressed, um, you know, I realized that the art of filmmaking is really built from, and comedy, is um, built from the momentum of, the, uh, you know, the generations before. Now I find myself watching, you know, these Buster Keaton films and my fiance thinks that I'm out of my mind. Nice. Wait, what was the term that you said? I like that term. Future wife? Oh, near wife. Near wife. That's is, it. Is the
1: one I used during my engagement. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah um but you know now i found myself watching those and i i rarely get past you know when watching comedy it's like i rarely get past the 80s and uh it was it was kind of a a, a cool thing to kind of see that how it evolved and and how it's just like anything else there's such an evolution and if you look at those those early movies and then and then what we have now i look at it and i see it, on the one hand it's it proves, you know, the, the evolution of, of art and how far it's come, but it also proves like how much we're the same. But how do you convey to your students that um you know the importance of these iconic films and the significance of knowing, you know, that they we are where we are today because of films like the you know, like the apartment and you know, the sure. list goes on.
1: Well well first, I mean I, I should return the compliment because the class also benefited from having you in it. So you. you you contributed a great deal to that class experience as well. Um, but to, to answer your question, it's how do we convey this? Well, you hope that the film can speak for itself, but the truth is it doesn't always. There, especially with comedy, where laughter is an involuntary thing, and it's it's. Very difficult to intellectualize without completely eliminating any enjoyment, eliminating any laughter. So I find that for some people it helps to sort of have the grounding in what's current. So, for example, Deadpool. Huge hit. I mean is tearing up the American and international box office right now. I'm going to see it this weekend. Tread carefully. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's it's a fun movie i enjoyed it it's a bugs bunny cartoon yeah in in multiple respects i mean the the protagonist this this guy deadpool is pretty much invulnerable though we see him getting beat up like bugs bunny or like daffy duck he's he does these you know balletic leaps and twirls through the air for no real reason and the film that's kind of an in joke in the film but uh, like Uh, A Warner Brothers animated character, and there's, of course—all of the violence is played for humor, Mm -hmm. like in Looney Tunes. And the thing, though, is that the influence doesn't end there. Bugs Bunny is Groucho Marx. Mm -hmm. The stooped walk, the way he he manipulates a carrot and kind of holds it like a cigar— uh, the asides to the audience, which are also all over the place in Deadpool. Wow, I never even
0: thought of that. That's crazy.
1: It it and I mean that's sort of a, a conscious influence. The people who created Bugs Bunny uh, drew openly from Groucho Marx and acknowledged it at the time. Uh, but it's um, yeah, it, it, it these. So in one case, in one sense, there's sort of nothing new under the sun. But in another sense, each generation is taking these same ideas and taking ownership of it, redefining it in a way that's going to be most appealing to us, right. as our forefathers did for themselves. <laughs> so I find that's a very useful route to help students in 2015-2016 understand and appreciate what's going on in in films that are culturally removed from them but to to sort of circle back to what I said about college and grad school once you've had your thinking reordered a little bit once you've been exposed to uh, a lot of cinema history you, you had a nice immersion in silent film and you can kind of Accept the things that are dated about these movies, and and kind of tune them out. Right. When you watch them, you sort of get used to the rhythm yeah. of them, and and that kind of thing. Uh, that's when. That's when you can, I think, enjoy them at their purest. Yeah. When when you're able to sort of disconnect, any remove, and and identify more closely with the characters, and that's that's when the laughs sort of feel present tense. Right. When when a comedy from the 30s doesn't feel like a museum piece. It feels contemporary. Right. And that, unfortunately, that approach takes some time. It takes some commitment to the study and appreciation of this stuff. And that's not something that you can ask of every student. Right. So at best, you sort of hope that people can meet you on that level. But for the most part, I find it's always possible to help Students connect with what's current, and and sort of bring that backwards. Not necessarily in a comparative sense, but in a, in a in a way to appreciate that filmmakers in the '30s thought the same things were funny that we think are funny. Right. They just expressed it a little differently.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and it, I also find it really kind of rewarding um, when when watching films. Uh, much like I could a- appreciate great design, like if I were to go to somewhere and see a really nice sign with great lettering to to the average person that means nothing but because i 've i 've been fortunate enough to have this college education I, I can appreciate it The same holds true with with films and um it 's a very re- rewarding thing when you can catch it like it is. like i I remember I immediately tweeted to you when I was watching mad Men and uh they alluded to um, was it a reference to the apartment? No, they had they had an apartment reference, which was one. <laughs> they had more than
1: one in that show. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think I, I heard that um, uh, John Slattery. That's one of that's one of his favorite movies. That's why. And and it, a lot of times when they're referenced, they're actually the ones that because later on Slattery was one of the. Uh, Producers, directors, he think. directed at directed. least like
1: once a season. in yeah. the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times there, it would be him saying the line about it. But uh, mm-hmm. don't quote me on that. and I'm not sure, but I, I, you know <laughs>
1: that's that's okay. The the hive brain will uh, fact yeah. check us. Yeah, 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 for
0: sure. The the uh, the IMDb uh, rides will happen. But um, what was I was going to say though, uh, we're referring to oh oh about being able to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, not the apartment. It was uh, the other film that we watched at the end there. The Graduate. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's, there's a scene. I remember it. That would have been so embarrassing if I forgot. Um, But there's, (laughs) happens all the
1: time. Don't sweat it.
0: Right. But, but the intro to season seven. It's, it's season seven of, uh, you know, this iconic benchmark. You know, whatever whatever you want, whatever buzzword you want to use for it. But Mad Men was really something significant. It was. And it, it it, it is the, the last. It's the pilot episode of the uh, of the last season. Can you say that first episode? You say first episode,
1: right? It's, it's. I think the pilot. The term pilot is really reserved for the first first. ever. Okay. Partially, be- and, and it, it, to just briefly get yeah. nerdy about it, it comes out of the idea that a pilot would be made so that a network could decide whether they wanted to go to, to series with it. So oh. it, in that case, it's really, it's like a pilot in the exploratory sense.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, so I'm still and, learning and, and here from Stuart Weinstein. I'm, I love I'm it. doing my best. <laughs> so, so, but to be able to, uh, this is a very long-winded way of saying um, that to, to be able to catch that is really something neat. To, to, to be able to say, oh, wow, that's kind of cool how they did it. And it was very subtle. But 99% of, of you know, not maybe not 99, but a lot of people watch that scene and think nothing of that. They think, oh, he's just going down and, and you know, he's just on his way to wherever he's going. Uh-huh. But to be able to find these little like, Easter eggs, I guess they refer to them as, like these, these, little, these little things within yeah. that are kind of buried, are, are, that's really kind of a re- rewarding thing to do. so
1: that's great. I'm glad that was part of your viewing experience. And I mean, this gives me an opportunity to go on public record as saying, I, I will actually argue that The Graduate is the, the greatest film ever made, wow. which, is a, which is bold, I know. And <laughs> I, for years, I had said The Godfather, but The Graduate is actually sort of more ambitious in its filmmaking. Than the Godfather. The Godfather is a perfectly told film, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's a wrong note in the entire thing. What about the third one? I don't like I, the third I, one. I'm just talking about the Godfather. Oh, part, part Two is is also a very very good film. Yeah. But I it, the first one. It doesn't surpass the first one for me. Yeah. Um, the third one, you know, I've seen once as a completist, which is great, and I've had that experience and. Yeah, probably don't need to revisit it. But in any case, I, I, the graduate has become, or I've come around to thinking that it's in, in its ambition and what it actually accomplishes, mm-hmm. uh, and what it has to to reveal on the twentieth viewing. Because I've I've seen this a lot.
0: Yeah, you have uh, to. I,
1: I've found a way of working it into most of the classes <laughs> I teach, which is one of the nice things about being a fan and and a teacher. But I, I love that film deeply and and still learn from it. I mean, I'm going to be chasing that thing, the the graduate, my entire career as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um but a- anyway, that that digression aside, what you're saying though about uh, kind of these references, these easter eggs, these um you know, homages if you want to get super French about it, I, they're they're oui, oui. good for the people who who get them. Yeah. And and I think they're nice sort of touchstones because the people who get them can then sort of have this conversation of, oh, did you see that reference? And isn't it cool how uh, Benjamin Braddock's uh, character arc in The Graduate sort of has this resonance with Don Draper's, or really maybe I should have said the reverse of that. Yeah. But it, that's kind of the limit for me of what that does. Um yeah, it, it's when filmmakers are referencing their favorite shots. So all, all filmmakers sort of steal from their favorites, steal from the best. And there's nothing wrong with, with kind of taking a good idea that worked somewhere, repurposing it and making it work equally well or better for the story right. that, that you're telling. But the Axel grind— with with filmmakers who get too deep into these references, who sort of make the references the text of their films, is um, Tarantino is sort of the worst at this <laughs> and with this for my taste yeah. because he, I, we get it that that Quentin loves movies that he has this encyclopedic knowledge and you know he makes an amazing programmer at the New Beverly and I could have a, fan, a a fantastic retirement from filmmaking as. Uh, a professor somewhere, but let's take the opening shot of The Hateful Eight. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll start with the most recent example. And I I do like large parts of The Hateful Eight, but this opening shot is a really long, slow pullback from a a wood or a stone uh, crucifix in the middle of a snowy landscape as this uh, stagecoach is, is very slowly coming into view. So people say this is an, an homage or a reference on two different levels. People talk about the stagecoach being a reference to Lawrence of Arabia, the way uh, Omar Sharif sort of just appears out of the desert and rides in from the very distant background, almost like a mirage coming to life. And yeah, that's an awesome shot, which looks fantastic when projected in 70 millimeter. and like David Lean is, is a very accomplished and interesting filmmaker. The problem with it is that stagecoach is only half the shot. The other half of the shot is this crucifix that's in the middle of nowhere, which is something that Quentin is pulling from Italian Westerns, from Mm -hmm. the work of uh, Corbucci, Leone, uh, and and others who are now escaping me in this moment. And um, for an Italian filmmaker making a Western, that graphic crucifix image has meaning. It has deep religious resonance, and a lot of the Italian Westerns are about sin and redemption in this very Catholic sense. Yeah. And the Hateful Eight isn't about that at all. Right. There's nothing like that in the <laughs> Hateful Eight. It, there's not, the actual meaning of the symbol— Right is completely removed from that moment. Instead, it's just a reference to these other filmmakers.
0: Right, it's just kind of like patting himself in the back, saying, I I know so much about, you know. Well, you know, it's going to be an an awesome
1: shot. And the truth is, it's aesthetically a great shot. I I mean, he and uh, Robert Richardson's, the DP, made a beautiful image there, but because the meaning of that symbol has no resonance in the movie anywhere, it's just a beautiful image. There's nothing else to it. Right. So that's the danger for me of, of references like that. If yeah. if, if it's got to be meaningful, not just for people who get it and know what yeah. other move, the other movie is, it's got to detonate in the story. It's got to right. mean something to the characters. It'd be
0: kind of underplayed and not so so obvious. I feel
1: like that's always nice too. You know, Billy Billy Wilder had a, had a lot of great stuff to say about screenwriting and said, you know, let your audience add up two plus two equals four. They'll always thank you for it. You never need to yeah. give them yes. the equals four part of that equation. Yes, I,
0: I agree with that wholeheartedly. And uh, again, a lot of ties, you know, a lot of what you're saying really ties in with design, and that's not what I'm trying to do today. But it's just kind of funny because... It's
1: really cool to w- hear, hear the overlap, down. though. Yeah, I mean, that inter- That's interesting to me.
0: Yeah. Okay, films evolve through the creative process. Um, a lot of times and especially from editors, you hear this, you know, that it's in the editing. Some people say it's in the directing. Uh, where do you think that, that um, great films are made? Is it the culmination, and is it how they all play together? I mean, this is a question that's a loaded question. Sure.
1: Well, my favorite cliche about this is that films are made three times, first in writing, then in production, then in editing, and I, I, there is some truth to that. Uh, what I love about film is that it's an inherently collaborative medium. At least as intended now i'll I'll toss in a i'll explain my qualification here, but typically, nobody makes a film on his or her own. There have to be other people involved there have to be there has to be people in front of the camera behind the camera, uh, somebody to shoot it, somebody to edit it. and in those collaborations. I've found the most rewarding creative work of my life. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying to me than being on set and having somebody come up with an idea that either, you know, conveys a moment, uh, tells part of a story, uh, an image, and anything, a performance uh, note, that an idea that I never could have thought of. and And that's why that's why i love do I, I that's why i love filmmaking i if if i wanted to if i wanted to express myself with an art that i could do entirely on my own i would be a writer i would be a painter i would be a sculptor something that's uh, inherently solitary but because film is by its nature collaborative it 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 feeds on this kind of hive brain and just the process of not only those moments of discovery when somebody has an amazing idea, I I mean, that's satisfying, and and there are so many great anecdotes in film history about things that just happened accidentally, but the process of getting other creative people to deliver their best work is actually my favorite part of directing. It's reading other creative people, seeing where their strengths are, encouraging them to dig deeper into what they do best, helping them sort of find solutions to problems as they arise, to sort of counter weaknesses as they are. That That's how I would define directing a film. And, and that's my favorite part of, of the process, bar none. Um, so to explain, though, the, the qualification I was going to toss out there, or, or th- I, that I am tossing out, right. with YouTube, we now have this whole concept of the solo creative, somebody who just sort of delivers it into their webcam or into their podcasting mic. Um, And, and in that case, it is sort of a solitary individual with total creative control. And there has been some great discoveries of this uh, sort of new concept because uh, the economics of filmmaking never really allowed for this for most of its history i mean when you're shooting on celluloid on on plastic film that's a really expensive thing to do and it requires a lot of creative hands and a lot of money just to get something shot much less edited and seen now with digital now with the ability of any average joe or jane to pick up their iphone and and or you know any smartphone and create something that's tremendously democratizing, but I don't think we've fully figured out what effect that that has on the process. Yeah. And I think we're headed towards some interesting hybrid now of film as this collaborative art it's always been, and this idea of the sole creator gaining some strength. Uh, it's not the way I, I like to work. I, I really thrive on having other people to bounce ideas and inspiration off of, right. but. I, I can see there are people already in the creative ecosystem who are doing very well, kind of on their own, and it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah,
0: and that that leads me to my, my last question. You kind of uh, started to, to go on that. And, that, and that's great to hear because uh, the the conversation that's been that I've heard a lot from um, my friends that are filmmakers and and in the media is talking about how well, we don't want another, you know, we don't want another Iron Man. We don't want another, but, but, uh, you know, because people are, are pirating movies or, you know, wh- whatever. And yet the,
1: hundreds of millions of people around the world very much want another Iron Man. Yeah. And there's no denying the commercial power of that, right. But please continue.
0: No, no, no absolutely. And, and there's definitely a place for them. I, I, I enjoy the Marvel series myself, all of them. And, um, but... There is kind of people say, well, well they don't make movies like they used to, and I think mm-hmm. one of the, one of the reasons why they don't t- tell me if I'm wrong here, but is is because you know they have these blockbuster kind of things, but things that are that are taking risks, much like they did, you know, and uh, Chevy Chase and all those guys. They kind of did things that were a little bit um, could be seen as off color or off putting, and, and mm-hmm. they kind of they were they weren't they weren't playing it safe. They they, they wasn't it, you know there were a lot of risks they were taking. Sure. Um, do you think that, that that is true? Do you think that that the reason why is because people are kind of just, they, they want sequels, they want, like, why, why is it that that happens in film? Why is it that you, you don't get movies like, you know, Goodfellas mm-hmm. or, or things like that?
1: Well, it's a tough question to answer in a concise way, but I'll, I'll do my best to sort of give you a, a, a survey of why why this is and how this is. Uh, first, I, I subscribe to the idea that, that some may say there's nothing new under the sun. I think there are just p- persistent trends in creative work. So I, I disagree that there are absolutely um, – I, I disagree in the sense that there are 100 percent filmmakers, comedians, You know, pick your field, people taking risks today as there were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago down the line. The terms of what those risks are change a bit. And I think you need to be very nuanced in how you look at sort of what's safe, what's commercial. Uh, Every era of filmmaking has groundbreaking and, and ambitious and good content being made. And also has really cheaply quickly made crap. Yeah. And that's, that goes back to the birth of the medium. Mm -hmm. Um, when it, it when you talk about as comedy in that case, um, one of the first things that came to mind was The Hangover, which is I mean a tremendously successful. The first one was yeah. tremendously successful. The only one <laughs> <laughs> took a lot of risks in that the the cast are all sort of like the lead cast of The Hangover are all kind of the supporting guys from other movies. Mm-hmm which is easy to forget because now they're all movie stars and yeah, they all kind yeah. of own their own projects. But, like, nobody put Ed Helms in on a poster for a movie before The Hangover. Yeah. Nobody I necessarily thought of Bradley Cooper as the lead in a movie before The Hangover. And uh, a lot of the humor in The Hangover is button-pushing. And, I, I mean, yeah, there are some cheap shock jokes in that, no question. Um, but then... So that, that's that's sort of my question. What what about that is risky? It's a low budget comedy with uh, actors who aren't expected to open the movie. So when it does well, I mean it does really well, right. and in the sense that it's profitable, there isn't a lot to make back. And then they make sequels that are certainly again transgressive in in the jokes they're trying to tell, and they're trying to push buttons. They're trying. They're looking for people to offend. Um, but the plot of the sequels are kind of carbon copies of the original. So the, on one case, you, we can say they're taking risks. Right. In another important case, though, they're playing it almost insultingly safe. Yeah. So what, is, what does that mean then in terms of, like, what's risky, what's commercial? You brought up Chevy Chase. Um, I love Chevy Chase and he he made a lot of uh, some really great stuff but then also a lot of down the middle commercial garbage yeah i agree with that for um, sure um and like i i think we could probably agree one of his best films Caddyshack, mm-hmm. is both of those things yeah on one hand it it's got the national lampoon guys and harold ramis you know working at at peak efficiency they're mm-hmm. they're sort of at their best but The shoot of that was a kind of a legendary shit show. Yeah, and a lot of the humor is pretty safe and lowbrow, and yet it's still a beloved film. So I I find really it's kind of hard to draw broad generalizations about what's commercial, what's safe, what's risky. You know, what's uh, groundbreaking because some of the stuff that sticks around that that become our classics are really kind of a hybrid of all those things
0: right yeah sure
1: so that's that's my best attempt at giving that's you awesome. a, no, a short a answer, answer to that i've always wanted
0: to know but uh, i know you have a class coming up thank you so much for meeting with me today
1: oh it's been fun
0: thank this you this has been a lot of fun and uh whenever you can we need to do a madman episode you need to re- go back and rewatch. Happily, and we were gonna. Because I have been meeting to have a. You know, nobody, nobody wants to have these conversations. They don't. They don't want to go deep with me. But you're, <laughs> you're like me. Like I will what, go yeah.
1: deep. I, the problem is now there's so much good TV, and yes. I'm, I'm watching more of it than I should. So already I've had to kind of clear mental real estate for the new yes. stuff. So I, I wouldn't need a refresher, yeah. but i I'll, I got a great link for you that kind of summarizes each episode and,
0: and and will help jog your memory.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love the Vulture recaps. Matt Zoller Seitz's stuff on it that got reprinted in this book called uh, The Carousel yeah. uh, is really excellent. And, yeah. like, there's so much great writing about Mad Men 2 that— yeah. I mean, we could we could get the refresher just by reading, and yes. then do our whole other layer of it. Cool. So I guess I, that's that's sort of a good note to end on too. Kind of a definition: what's great art? Something that we still want to talk about yes. long after experiencing it. And something that
0: defines your life. So, I mean, there there are episodes like the suitcase, for example, is. Oh God! I mean, yeah. That was like, I don't know what it was about that episode. I just wanted I just wanted to cry at the end, and I never want to cry. And it wasn't particularly mm-hmm. sad, but it was just like. It resonated with me like so much. Next, we're going to talk about on our next episode. Cool, awesome, Stuart. This has been
1: fun. Likewise, Rob. Thank you for having me on this.